welcome to Out the Gate, the podcast about telling and adventures on and around San Francisco Bay. As some of you might remember, my older daughter introed the show a while back. Well, my younger one's been asking to do the same ever since. And now that they've gotten equal airtime, family harmony should be restored for about five minutes. In my last episode, I talked with Philippe Jamont, who, having sailed out of San Francisco the first day of October, was making good time towards the Torres Straits with the intention of completing a quick 200-ish day westbound solo circumnavigation. But after losing a couple of spinnakers and then finding some stress cracks in his boom, he decided it was probably smart to head home and make repairs instead of possibly facing catastrophic failure of gear somewhere more remote like the Southern Ocean. Right now he's just south of Hawaii heading north out of the doldrums and plans to make a right turn east toward home in the next couple of days. While Philippe had hoped to circle the globe in a matter of days, my next guest decided to take his time circumnavigating. In 1999, at age 29, Clark Beak set out from Newport Harbor on his 40-foot catch. He thought he'd be out cruising about a year. Ten years later, he sailed into San Francisco with stories to tell of being torn apart by a Rottweiler, getting dengue fever, surviving a bloody insurrection in Fiji, a tsunami in Thailand, and being run over by a container ship. Clark is a great writer, and if you've read any sailing publications, you've probably seen a piece by Clark, who figures he's written for every sailing magazine out there. He's an expert marine electrician. He worked for the Spectra Watermaker Company, and for a time he was the general manager of the Spalding Marine Center, which is where we sat down for this interview. Let me just have you start by introducing yourself and telling us where we are, because we're in a pretty great space here. All right, all right. I am Clark Beak. I am 51 years old. I'm a circumnavigator, and we are sitting in the machine shop of the Spalding Marine Center in Sausalito, California. And uh, Spalding has been here since the early 50s, and um, Myron Spalding passed away uh, in 2001 or 2002, and uh, his surviving wife, who passed away a few years later, left this place in a, in a trust, so it's a 501c3 nonprofit and a working boatyard. For those not familiar with it, it's a pretty special place. You just walk in and you feel the history. Not only these World War II vintage lathe and drill press and bandsaw that we're sitting next to you here, but you walk into the main building and upstairs there's this beautiful library of nautical books. Yeah, the nautical library, and that was the spar loft. And um, we actually built a few wooden spars there in the last couple of years, so every every place is still serving its purpose. But a, a wooden boat hasn't been like lofted up and built here in a long, long, long time. Yeah. When I first moved to the area, I did a little bit of volunteering here, here and sailed on one of the gaff-rigged boats uh, during the day, which is fabulous. What is your connection to, to Spalding here? 
I was the general manager here for three years. Okay. And um, which is not the boatyard manager. Chris is the boatyard manager, and he deals with the day-to-day headaches. Um, I was the general manager when Spalding was doing more events and um, classes and all that, which is, of course, completely shut down now. Yeah, in COVID times. Well, let's back up. Did you grow up uh, in the Bay Area? No, I'm a transplant. I grew up in Southern California, okay. in Newport Beach and Irvine. Mm-hmm. Did you start sailing down there? What, how did you get into sailing? I did. I did. My dad's a sailor and um, a member of the Newport Harbor Yacht Club. And I started sailing Sabbaths there and quickly grew to despise it. Um, and went on despising sailing until I became a, a windsurfer. And windsurfing uh. is when I you know, got into competing and kind of enjoying it. Was that up here or was that down? Down there. I, didn't, I, I moved here like 12 years ago. After okay. my, I finished my circumnavigation in San Francisco and swallowed Got the it. anchor. Yeah. <laughs> well, we will get to that uh, shortly here. But um, how did you make the transition from a board back to a hull? So my family had a, a lovely powerboat, the Vamos, which has since been donated, wooden boats. And I always thought sailboats were slow and silly <laughs> until my two cousins from Santa Cruz. They are slow and silly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my two cousins from Santa Cruz were going to do a whole Pacific circuit on a, um, an Islander 36. Okay. And they came in down and tied up at our family dock when I was about 17. And the boat was loaded with surfboards and windsurfers and guitars. And I'm like, what? Where, where are you guys going? And like, we're going to the South Pacific. We're going to surf. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And uh, obviously I expressed an interest. And then... Um, a year later, I get a call from my dad. This is like a week before my high school graduation. And he says, yeah, I got a call from your cousins, Rocky and Joe. They're down in American Samoa. And they want to know if you'd like to come down and spend the summer sailing with them from there to Hawaii. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, hold on, hold on. This is a big decision. This is a big deal. And your mom is going to kill me. <laughs> but if you want to do it, they're going to call back in a few days. And I'll buy you the plane ticket down there and the plane ticket home for your graduation present. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so a few days after I graduated high school, I flew to American Samoa and spent summer cruising and um, mostly sailing. I mean, we stopped at um, Penryn and Christmas Island, engineless boat. Um, at that point, it was engineless. So we took like 23 days to get from Christmas Island to Kauai. No functioning head. It was bare bones. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when we have three guys living on a boat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how long were you doing that on the Islander? Uh, summer. Yeah. So then I started college the, the next fall. Okay. Yeah. Eventually, you went off cruising on your own boat. Was that a long college? Yeah. So from the time with my cousins, it, the, the seed was planted. You know, I really yeah. wanted to do it again and get my own boat. But, of course, got to save up the money. Went to college and graduate school, and then it was maybe four or five years out of grad school that I had the boat and, and took off. You knew you wanted to take off again, or was there something else that flipped the switch again? I was working in high tech, and I pretty much burned out. Um, I ended up like chronically depressed and with health troubles and decided I was, I decided I was going to take a one-year sabbatical, and I just didn't know back then that a year just, that's nothing in cruising time. <laughs> and it turned into how many years? Uh, it was almost 10. 
10 years. Yeah. 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 So you found a boat. Tell us about that process when you decided to, to head off again. Um, so Candessa, my boat is a Sailor 40. It's a Laurent Giles design. He's an English designer. It was built in 67. It's fiberglass. And I went to a brokerage in San Diego to look at another boat, to look at a Cal 246, actually, an antique DAX. It was like too much boat. And it was out on a mooring. And on our way back in from the mooring, I saw the for sale sign on this boat. I think it was like represented by a different broker at the same brokerage. Because mm-hmm. I was like, no, no, you wouldn't be interested in that. I'm like, well, I, actually, I'd like to take a look. I just happened to be reading uh, Cruising Under Sail by Eric Hiscock. Mm-hmm. And this boat is mentioned in the book. He talks about it's in this section on some notable cruising designs. And I just kind of realized, well, wait a minute, this boat has pedigree. It's just nobody in the U.S. knows it. This is a like, you know, top English boat. And so I did some research and yeah, ended up buying the boat. Yeah. And I have to read this um, paragraph from your blog, both because I love what it says about your um, circumnavigation, but I love how it's written. And this will get us into some stories here, I think. Actually, I'm going to have you read it. (laughs) The last paragraph there. Because you'll do it more justice than I. While cruising, I was torn apart by a Rottweiler, had dengue fever in Costa Rica, and dysentery in India. Went through a bloody insurrection in Fiji and the tsunami in Thailand. Ran aground on shoals and reefs, sailed through storms, and was run over by a container ship, sustaining over $40,000 in damage paid by the shipping company. Some would consider this pretty bad luck. Some would say I should have taken a hint. Averaged out, that's less than one disaster per year, and I consider myself pretty lucky. I love it. One disaster per year. Well, that gives us lots to talk about here. What? Obviously, there were a lot of memorable moments. I'm sure highlights as well as those lowlights. Let's start with the container ship, because I know that's a fear that a lot of people have. Maybe a little less so with AIS these days, but not all the ships out there have AIS. What was that experience? Uh, So we were sailing down the coast of Brazil. I think I decided at that point I was going to go around the Horn and come back to California that way. So we were sailing south. We were near um, Santos, like kind of offshore from Sao Paulo, which is quite far inland. And um, about 12 miles offshore, it just got dark. My buddy Ian was on watch. And we were staying 12 miles offshore because inshore of us were a kajillion fishing boats. Mm. I think trawlers. I'm not sure. Ian got me up in a panic, said, hey, hey, there's this big ship coming. You know, get up here. And I got up in the cockpit, and I was buck naked. I just had a towel wrapped around me, and kind of my eyes adjusted. And it was like, oh, shit, he's close. And it's like, yeah, yeah, he was going behind us, but now he turned. He's going in front of us. Just utter, utter panic. So... To backtrack a bit, I think what was happening is this big ship was weaving among these fishing boats and not maintaining a straight course. And it looked, you know, it kept changing course. And so Ian's, you know, really sharp guy, good sailor. He spent like more than a year crewing for me at that point. And by the time, I, you know, it was just like nothing we could do. And we, we by the time I got in the car- cockpit, we were probably a minute away from impact. Oh my and in like full combat mode, preventer set, um, wheel locked, propeller shaft locked so it didn't auto rotate. So like just to tack the boat or get the engine started or anything would have taken us close to a minute. And it was just like this realizing just like that we are about to get 
freaking pulverized here. <laughs> and, uh, and we did. Um, but I jumped at the last minute, which was real. Well, I say it's really stupid, but in hindsight, you know, it might not have been. Who knows? We're all, we all live to tell the tale. You're here. But um, I jumped naked. I lost the towel the minute I hit the water. <laughs> and um, oh, the, the bow of your worries. And the bow wave of the container ship hit me and like tumbled me like you do in the surf. And then I sprinted some more, and by the time I popped my head out, I was about six feet away from the ship with the thing like whipping by me at 18 knots. And then at the aft end of the ship, there was this open intermediate deck with lights on where I thought there might be somebody. So I screamed and screamed and screamed and screamed, but nobody heard me, and the ship went steaming off into the night, never to be seen again. And there was Condessa still afloat with, you know, we turned on the spreader lights to make ourselves more visible. So it was still lit up, but I could see like she was half sunk and the sails were in tatters and, you know, rigging was destroyed. I mean, she'd really been, been hit. So I swam back to the boat, yelled when I got close, heard people yelling back, got aboard. And, you know, from that point on, it was pretty much just assessing the damage and realizing that the boat was taken on water. It had taken on water, but from being knocked down and flooding, it was only hold in one place, so it was taken on maybe a couple gallons an hour, nothing serious. Wow. Yeah, once the bilge pumps pumped out all the water, it was kind of like, I don't think we're sinking. I think we're, you know, we were like getting the life raft ready, and yeah, so we just, we were 12 miles offshore, so we just took it real slow under motor and made it to shore to a little bite and anchored for the night and did, you know, damage control the next morning. Wow. Yeah. What year was this that you were circumnavigating? I left in January 99. Okay. And again, the whole plan for the f was just to do a one-year sabbatical. So I was just going right. down to Central America, and we'll probably get to it later. But I met kind of a sailing mentor down there who talked some sense into me and told me to keep going. Um, so at, at some point, I just... I, I don't know when I decided I was circumnavigating, but I finally made the decision to sail across the Pacific. So that would have been in the middle of uh, 2000. And uh, spent a year and a half in Sydney, Australia. Like, now hardly left Sydney. Uh, then sailed to New Zealand, did a big refit in New Zealand. Spent about a year there. Then uh, back up into the South Pacific to Vanuatu. Um, over the top end of Australia, back to Darwin, up to Singapore. Thailand, was there for the tsunami. Um, spent a year and a half in Thailand. Uh, spent a lot of time in these places because of mishaps or health reasons or whatever. Um, India, then um, down to Chagos, Seychelles, um, Tanzania, Mozambique, South Africa, around the tip of Africa, and then from then over to Brazil, where got run over by a container ship. <laughs> <laughs> so let's back up to that. There's the sailing mentor you mentioned. You were in Central America, you said? Yeah, in, in Costa Rica. I'm a guy named Vern Kepsel. Um, who was 83 years old, and um, we both ended up in Punta Arenas for a couple of weeks. He, w he was cruising with his son, and his son had gone back to California for a while, and I was waiting for a buddy to meet me. So we were kind of two bachelors in Punta Arenas for a couple of weeks, and we ended up having dinner on one, of one boat or the other every night, and uh -huh. turned out he'd known my grandfather back in the day. What? Um, and uh, so we became, you know, very close and, and hung out a lot in there. And then um, down in Southern Cali uh, Costa Rica in the um, Golfo Dulce. 
And I don't know, one night I said, I'm like, yeah, well, by then I'll be turning around and heading back to California. And, you know, and he's like, well, what do you want to do that for? And I was like, well, I don't know. I've got to go back and work. And he said, isn't it your dream to sail around the world? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it someday. And he's like, no, you won't. I've been wanting to do it my entire life, and I'm just getting to it now, and I'm 83 years old. If you go back, you will never get back to it. And of course, he was right. I mean, I never would have got back to it. He's like, you've got the boat. You've got the time. You should go now. You should do it. And I just, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe. You know, all right, I was food for thought. And then um, when we parted ways, we were going to meet you know, later in the Galapagos or in the uh, South Pacific somewhere, and he went down with his ship in the Galapagos. He, they came into mischief and ended up uh, in the surf and on the rocks, and, and he was killed, and the boat oh. was destroyed, and his son um, escaped with a couple of broken legs. Wow, sorry and to hear that. Yeah, so that was kind of like, all right, I'm carrying the torch for Vern. I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. Where were you when you got that news? En route. I think we were, I think we were at sea and we heard it on a ham net and they had the, or a single sideband net and they had the name of the boat wrong. The name of the boat was Pacific Star and they were calling it something and all of a sudden like, no, 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 this can't be, this can't be. And sure enough, within a day we'd confirmed that it, it was Pacific Star. And so I, when we got to the Galapagos, we went to the spot, and there was nothing left but the mast. You could see a little stub of the mast sticking up out of the surf. But mm. yeah. I can see that going one of two ways. He's saying, kind of turning you off of it or reinvigorating you to, like you said, carry the torch. And it yeah. the ladder. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of what got Vern is his age. He, he couldn't hear that they were getting into the surf. Oh. His hearing was bad, and yeah, so yeah. do it while you're young. <laughs> do it while you can. <laughs> what are some of the other things that stand out? I mean, boy, you mentioned some doozies here, other than getting run over by a container ship, but any highlights that you want to mention? Uh, well, the Rottweiler was the guard dog at Vern's house. Vern was house-sitting huh. at a place in, down in the Golfo Dulce, and uh, I went through this friendship ritual with this, I mean, just junkyard dog, Rottweiler, scary looking thing. And kind of like I was feeding it and petting it one day. I'm like, okay, I think he's accepted you. And the next time I came on the property, he had not accepted me. And he tore into me. <laughs> and and uh, I did a good job of fending him off and staying on my feet. Um, so all the, the wounds were to my hands and wrists and stuff. And, mm. then, and then I screamed like a, a baby and, and uh, the caretaker came out and got the dog off but I had like I don't know, 30 or 50 stitches in my hands and wrists with no anesthesia they Oof. just had to go they said with the dog bite being so infectious they risked like driving it in deeper with the syringe which my wife who's a doctor says is BS but I had to get all these stitches just like raw <laughs> they just wanted to see you wince yeah <laughs> Ah, having had dengue myself, I know that that's no walk in the park. You got that in Costa Rica? Yeah, I think back to um, Punta Arenas. It would have been that time I was first hanging out with Vern, but there was a big outbreak. They were spraying DDT, these big clouds of DDT. There were, I think, 30, 32 people died in this outbreak because it, you know, it kills old people and little kids and stuff. And 
I was waiting there for my buddy Brian. Brian showed up, and the first day or two he was there, I started feeling really bad, and mm-hmm. he had the worst vacation of his life. He's he's a good sailor too. I done <laughs> a lot of sailing with him, so he could he could captain the boat. But I'd come on, Clark, let's go sailing. I mean, I'd like uh. crawl up to you know help drop the anchor or something, and then just like crawl back down into my bunk. Oh. <laughs> yeah, oh. that's rough. So how did crew work? Did you usually have somebody else aboard, or were you single-handed in a lot of the circumnavigation? Um, towards the end, I, circ- I single-handed a lot, but I think I've counted like 80, 85 different crew members throughout the wow. circumnavigation. You know, my dad had come, I think, every year for a good extent, and he, you know, he's a sailor. He didn't want to, you know, just cruise. He wanted to do the big passages, so he was a reliable passage-making crew. Yeah. Um, Great timing with friends from home, just being between jobs and being able to take extended vacations. And then a lot of people I just met on the road, a couple old girlfriends. (laughs) You mentioned the tsunami, and I read an article you wrote about that. You were unaware that this this was in 2004, Boxing Day. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible tsunami. But tell the story there. You were... Out at sea when it hit. I think we'd been at anchor and we just got underway in the Bhutan group, which is the southernmost group of islands in Thailand. Uh-huh. And I did notice some current swirling around and kind of thought, huh, wow, current really rips around here. I didn't never notice that before. And then the next island we got to, we noticed a lot of flotsam and jetsam and started hearing some, we had, you know, shortwave radio we started hearing on the BBC. And it wasn't, you know, we were just oblivious. We didn't, I was with my ex-girlfriend, and it wasn't until we got to Koh Lanta, which is a good, good-sized island with some tourist infrastructure that people started telling us what had happened. And, and then I realized I had a, a friend who had a dive company on Koh Phi Phi, which got, you know, freaking obliterated. And yeah. I, oh, man, I got, we got to get going right away to go, to go check on her. And it turns out she was fine, but lost her business, lost her house, lost everything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, we didn't realize about 300,000 people died that morning. I mean, it's like the fourth worst natural disaster in human history. I mean, it really... So it killed about 40,000 people in Thailand. So it was all doom and gloom. And if you had been anchored in the harbor, would that have been problematic or would have... No, a lot of boats anchored... um, so tsunamis like a nice gradual slope. That's what gets them really dangerous. If they come from just deep water up onto a shallow shelf, it, it's almost unnoticeable. You know, play, you know, Banda Aceh in Indonesia, where it killed the most people, I guess that's what the bottom contour is there. And you look mm-hmm. at the videos, it's just, I mean, the, the wave, the storm surge, or whatever you call it, the tsunami went like a mile inland. And mm-hmm. So, um, like Kopp obliterated the place the Bhutan group where we came from we thought like oh god the people we were partying with last night are all dead nope did almost no damage just washed up on the beach people got their ankles wet <laughs> so it's really weird yeah. and then on the whole um andaman seaside of phuket it was quite bad because it's a gradual slope and a lot of development there and, and then up north of there off phuket on the thai mainland is where it was the worst it, it really um Kao Kosak, I think it's called. Yeah. Okay, and this is the last disaster that I'm going to focus on, I promise. Insurrection in Fiji? Tell us about that. 
there was a, a 20 some years of unrest in Fiji with like these kinds of things happening all the time. But this particular night, it was some splinter group within the military that had tried to, not a full on coup, but they'd kidnapped a few people. And, you know, I've never been in the military, but there were rockets and machine guns and guns and flares going on. It was like World War Three. So we're sitting out on the boat at anchor thinking like, Thousands of people are dying right now. I mean, the city of Suva is in a you know, full-on war. Only seven people died. It was just like, what? All that and only seven people? So I guess a lot of shots are fired and very few connect. But um, yeah, yeah. Crazy. And we were totally disabled. I had the transmission out of the boat oh, being, no. being rebuilt. So no, we were just like sitting escape. ducks. And there was a Navy ship, like kind of like a PT boat, anchored right near us with all these guys with guns, like crouching up on the bow. Like, oh, great. These guys are either... An American Navy or... No, no Fijian. Fijian, Fijian ready to... I don't, I, I don't know, but just yeah. like, great. Guys with guns, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the middle of all this. Yeah. Um, well, you've certainly gotten yourself into some interesting spots. You've done a lot of writing about your sailing for, for Sail Magazine and, and what other outlets... I think I've written for about every sailing magazine in the world. I love it. I think, yeah. Even because, well, back in the day, you, um, you know, in English, you could sell into you could you could sell the same article into three or four different markets. Yeah. You, know, you could sell it into Australia. You could sell it into South Africa. You could sell it into the UK as well as the US. And now you, yeah, you can't do that. They get yeah. very they get very upset about that. How did that start? When did you start writing and submitting pieces? Uh, it was when I was in Australia, maybe. I submitted the first one to, and uh, kind of thought they'd ignore me or something. And um, Charlie Doan, who's a longtime editor at Sail Magazine, he replied right away and really shepherded me along. So I'd, I'd read, like, start small, go for a really short piece, like something one page. just And that's what I did. I did a very short technical article, and, and they liked it. And, and then... You know, surprisingly for all these cruising magazines, there's not that many people out there actually cruising that can write these stories, especially, you know, places I was, because I ended up, you know, I went to Burma back before people sailed to Burma, and I was able to write wow. about some of these places where people just weren't going yet. And, and uh, What year were you in Burma? That was uh, from Thailand, so that would have been okay. like 2003, 2004. Wow. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you, when you were out cruising... You had those stories to tell. Did you have a beat? Did, was there anything in particular that you liked to focus on and write on? Uh, kind of split between destination pieces and technical articles. Yeah. It's, it's travel writing. It's respectable writing. You know, yeah. you're, you're writing a feature. When you do a destination piece, you're writing a feature. You're kind of telling about the place and trying to make it not sound like a travel brochure. And What pieces stick out in your memory? Uh, the one I wrote about sailing to Antarctica is probably my favorite. And then the, the container ship story. Yeah. yeah. I actually read that before yeah. coming over and it is gripping the way you write it. It is gripping. Yeah. But what's the Antarctica story? Tell us about that. Um, just doing it. Um, it was definitely the adventure and accomplishment of my life. Um, you know, going down there on a 40 foot fiberglass boat. Yeah. I mean, most people are on these big steel or aluminum monsters. And I'm sure I'm, I wasn't the first on a boat like that. And in fact, we ran into um, uh, 
uh, Wanderer 3, Eric Hiscock's old boat with um, uh, it's Kitty and I forget, the, I forget the guy's name, but they were down there on like a 35-foot wooden boat. So, you uh-huh. know, pe- people do it. But um, it was just a really good year for ice. So I talked mm. to a lot of people who were coming back. At the time, there were six or eight charter boats running out of the Beagle Channel um, taking, they could probably fit in like three trips a year of three weeks each and make a living at it, but all like these big steel or aluminum beasts, right. you know, like 50, 60, well, um, Skip Novak's Skip boats, Novak's Pelagic is 50, and Pelagic Australis is like 75 or 85, you know, big old monster boats. And So I went through weeks of asking people, do you think it's crazy to go on a fiberglass boat? And I'm like, uh-huh. Not if you're careful, and <laughs> and then you know, like anything, I met a and just freaking out about it, freaking out. Like I during the day, I'd be asking the way I'd be like lying. You know, you're in Charito Fuego, it's freezing cold. I'm like lying in my bunk, freezing at night, just like this is crazy. I'm not gonna sail to Antarctica. I'm gonna die. Forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Tomorrow, going up the Chilean channels, going home, and then like the next day, I'd start talking to people again. But I had a um, couple influential people again i had this sort of like mystical experience with these french people who had just gone back they had a charter boat they were like these superhuman people like these incredibly beautiful women and these incredibly fit men who you know spoke beautiful english with french accents and they kind of told me like yeah you will go and we just had like this moment of silence with them smiling at me and just like i am gonna go and then um alejandro an argentine guy who has a 65 foot steel boat and ran charters. I knew him pretty well. And I, we, because he's from Buenos Aires and I'd lived in Buenos Aires. And I, Alejandro, what do you think? And he just said, like, I think you will sail to Antarctica and you will come back with a big smile on your face. <laughs> ah, I love it. But it's just to, you know, like Cape Horn is the Mount Everest of cruising or whatever to sail around it and just to sail past it. Just like, no, I'm not sailing around it, I'm sailing past it even deeper into the darkness, you know? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) It's almost impossible not to get hit by something, but you wait and you wait, because there's a storm about every month where it blows over 100 knots. So you want to miss one of that. You just want to miss one of those. So we left. We were, you know, horrible storm, waiting, 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 and finally, like, all right, let's go. And I think I... My radar was broken, and I'm like, uh, not going among the ice with a broken radar, but I like, rewired the way it radar, got it fixed, the weather cleared, and I remember just saying, like, I guess there are no more excuses not to sail to Antarctica. So when you did take off, what was the, the weather, and did you have any close calls? Um, nice weather, meaning, you know, it's always blowing pretty good yeah. down there, but blowing like 30 or something instead of 50. And um, I was with uh, another American single-hander and this French backpacker girl who kind of hopped on um, so we, I think we had a couple days of good weather, and then, you know, we're, you're watching the weather really carefully. You yeah. great weather faxes from the Chilean Armada, and we saw, like, yeah, we're going to get hit, and sure enough, we got hit, and it started blowing. But they're small little systems, these little low-pressure systems. They never, they pass in, like, 10, 12 hours. So we kind of, we ran with it, just dropped everything, went under bare poles, and um, probably only lost 50 miles, just went, sailed basically due east for a while and for mm-hmm. the night and then it cleared and then had good weather the rest of the way and about the same thing happened on the way back across the drake where we got hit by one thing and it was blowing straight behind us and we could just run with it what were your heavy weather tactics bare poles a catch will or my catch heaves to really beautifully under just the mizzen 
So like I've been in, I don't know, 50, 60 knots. You just drop everything except the mizzen, and the mizzen makes the boat weathercock pretty mm. much, you know, maybe 30 degrees off the wind. And then you just like textbook heaving to with the slick to windward, and it dulls the seas. And I've got a sea anchor. I've never actually deployed it. I thought it'd be a good, I had it made in New Zealand, and I've got all the tackle and never got that far. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why, any thoughts on why catches just aren't as popular anymore? I've probably put up my mizzen like once in the last 10 years mm-hmm. on San Francisco Bay. It's just like more claptrap. If you're only sailing for the day, it's not worth it. But if yeah. you're crossing oceans, it's great. I yeah. mean, the versatility um, flew a mizzen staysail a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So my, my boat's not fast, but on these long ocean passages, I was keeping up with the racer cruisers because... Yeah, they're flying a chute, but maybe eight hours a day, and then they get tired, and they're back to two sails, where I'm like four sails, 24-7, 20 days in a row, you know, (laughs) on a long reach, like a lot of trade wind runs are, yeah. With self-steering gear? Yeah, so I have a wind vane, both a wind vane and an autopilot. Okay. Yeah. Antarctica was obviously a highlight. What were some of the other highlights, since we talked about so many of the (laughs) tough spots along the way? Vanuatu was really where my South Pacific dreams came true. I mean, you, you know, you, always, you think about going to the South Pacific and then you finally get there and you're like, there's a McDonald's here or whatever, you know? <laughs> um, so it was the place where we got there and just like, well, we had a, we just absolutely got slammed sailing up from New Zealand. We had a, a system. So it was a tough passage and then the weather cleared and we pulled into Tana and it's just like, is this a dream? There's like an active volcano, you know, where you can see the lava and the smoke, the, the Yasser volcano on Tana. And then these big like fumaroles, like belching steam randomly out of the jungle and um, great protected harbor at Port Resolution. And then um, just these great villages with these super friendly people that, you know, live in villages of maybe 400 to a thousand people, but all super educated. They'll speak like their own local language, probably a couple different local languages because the neighboring village will speak a different language. And then they'll either speak French or English or both um, because kind of, it just depends where they are, whether it's a French school or an English school. And then they all speak Bislama, which is the national language, which is like a, a pidgin English. Yeah, we met some lovely people and stayed quite a while but yeah active volcanoes everywhere and great surfing and great fishing and oh, yeah sounds great. i'm ready to go <laughs> so you said you swallowed the hook here in san francisco what was the adjustment like after 10 years of cruising uh, my friends make fun of me because I landed on my feet. Uh, <laughs> uh, I came here because my, my, my best friend Elias was living here. You know, I lived in San Diego for 10 years. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to go back to some place where I'm comparing my new life to my old life. Because before I left, I was working in high tech and, you know, not getting rich, but had disposable income. And when I got back here, it was 2008. It was the, the crash. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, okay, I'm going to get a job. And she's like, 25 people got laid off today from Yahoo. Do you think they're going to hire a dude who's been MIA for 10 years or one of them? You know, I'm just like, I'm not. So that's how I got into the marine industry. It's just like, yeah, I better start practicing the things I know. And I know how to work on boats now. So that's how I kind of, I mean, I've been adjunct to it because our family business is the Babylon Ferry. So I've all, you know, we've sort of been in the marine business, but 
Yeah, I started in 2008 fixing boats. <laughs> I met my wife like six weeks after I got here. Oh, that helps. And then we, and then we moved in together like four or five months later. <laughs> <laughs> that always makes the transition a little easier. It made the transition really easy. Yeah. <laughs> so you still have your boat? The yes, same boat? very much so. <laughs> she is where? Uh, I keep it in front of a private house over at Paradise K, a, mm-hmm. a woman um, rents me some dock space. That's great. Yeah. And you go out sailing often on the bay? Yeah, yeah. And um, going up to Tamales Bay next weekend with a buddy, which is about as adventuresome as I get these days. But um, we have sort of tentative plans to take off in a couple of years on a sabbatical, a family sailing sabbatical. Nice. And my kids are five and seven. So by then they'll be like eight and 10, which I think will be a good, good age. And pull them out of school and teach them the ropes. And what do they think about sailing around here on the bay? They like it. I'm trying not to scare them. Um, yeah. We went out under the Golden Gate and set some crab traps once, and they just in, just off Baker Beach, and they, they got a little freaked out. I mean, it's full combat mode under, once you're out under the Golden Gate. It was definitely rough, but, um, but we've done a lot of trips to the Delta uh, where the water's warm and they swim. And, yes, um, did so. that for the first time this year, and it was yeah, yeah, we love it out there. In fact, I read, I was doing research on it before I went and was reading your articles. So oh, cool, cool. Thank you for that. It was very helpful. Um, after circumnavigating, how do you compare sailing in the bay to sailing you've done out around the world? I mean, if you can sail here, you can sail anywhere. I mean, I remember my dad, you know, in Southern California, you know, the wind's usually light. You get afternoon west. west. I remember my dad from the time I was a little kid being like, oh, oh, San Francisco, it blows like snot up there. Oh, boy, you know, and, and it does. I mean, through the summer, it howls almost every afternoon. And, I mean, right at the Golden Gate Bridge, depending on what the current's doing. I mean, it's as rough there as it is anywhere. So, um, and I think Point, Point Reyes is the windiest spot on the California coast. So, oh, really? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. So it's pretty, pretty consistently windy up there. And so, yeah, well, if you're taking off on a circumnavigation from here, likely the first 500 miles are going to be like the coldest, roughest part of the whole trip. <laughs> make it out it's all downhill yeah (laughs) anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to mention um well the container ship story had a very happy ending um it took us two days to limp down the coast to florinopolis which is where we did temporary repairs the port captain there was friendly but not helpful i was like hey we're trying to we got hit by the ship we're trying because i never saw the name of the ship truth be told I didn't know who'd hit us. Yeah. And the port captain was saying, like, no, 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 I can't tell you anything. That's all proprietary information or something. I just started poking around the Internet, like, no, it's not. There's this big container port right near where we got hit, and all their data is published online, like when every ship docked, when it arrived in port, when it left port. And I saw on record there was this 800-foot ship that left port like 45 minutes before we were hit, and that was the only container ship to leave port within, like, 10 or 12 hours of when we got hit and it was northbound everything met up i'm like that's our ship so i finally made contact with some good advice from my now deceased uncle who was a big time lawyer and um 
you know, the shipping, it's crazy. There's like management company and leasing companies and underwriters, you know, like you could never out find out who even owns one of these ships. Like nobody owns them. They're all leased. But um, when I finally got through the gatekeepers or whatever, and they realized that I was telling a true story, I got a, a call from some good old boy in Tampa, Florida. And he says, like, we're going to handle this on what's called a no fault, no contest basis. That means we ain't saying we hit you, but we're not denying it either. And we're going to pay to have your boat fixed. As long as there's no like pain and suffering or any of that psychological damage, we're just going to fix your boat. And I'm like, great, fix my boat. They said 50,000 bucks was the cap, like couldn't go over 50,000 bucks. So we came out to about 48,000 something, <laughs> which is a real, a real shot in the arm after cruising for yeah. eight years. I mean, I was nearly broke and I was limping the boat home at that point and then got run over by the ship. So this was like 50,000 bucks, new galley, new sails, new tanks, new engine mounts, all kinds of new stuff because i mean the boat got smashed i mean the whole starboard side got completely smashed in but it sort of oil canned back into place and didn't sink <laughs> happy ending <laughs> i love it that's a great way to end the, yeah. end the interview clark this has been a real pleasure sure thank you my I'm pleasure sure there are many more stories that you could share but we'll leave it there all right thank you ben That's it for this episode. You can read more about Clark and his adventures at condesa.org. That's C-O-N-D-E-S-A dot org. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.